If you have your Bibles, please meet me in the book of Psalms, chapter 73. On a personal level, this psalm has been something that's been on my heart all week, it seems. And just recently, I'm hearing that a lot of people are being drawn to this psalm. I see all the guys nodding their heads because I'm, I'm thinking that this is what you spoke about last night, the men's meeting. Psalm 73. This is going to be a different type of message. We're not going to take main points out of this necessarily. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse and see what the Lord has in mind concerning this psalm, why he's given it to us. But it's very important to understand who here is speaking. And if you look at your Bibles, it says right there in verse 1 that this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph. Now before we read on, we have to ask ourselves, who is this person, Asaph? Who is this individual that is writing this song? And by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, we know that Asaph is mentioned in other portions of Scripture. And you don't have to turn there, but there's one here in 1 Chronicles 25.1. And it tells us that David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph. And of Heman, and of Jeduthun, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. So right there in that simple verse, in another verse in 1 Chronicles, we realize that Asaph is a special individual. He's not just this random character that is writing a song that has found itself in the Bible. This man has been set apart, who lived under the reign of King David himself, to be a minister. And a specific type of minister. 1 Chronicles 6 tells us that he was set apart to do what? To lead the people of God in worship. He was a man that was gifted by God to write, to create tunes with a heartbeat that gives glory to the Lord. This was an individual that was gifted to create, not only with the mind, but we just even read, who prophesied, who had the ability by the Spirit to create something and to declare something with instruments that would declare the glories of God. If there's a title for this message, it would be this, Confessions of a Worship Leader. Confessions of a Worship Leader. Let us feel the way to understand that this man is a spiritual leader. Let us understand that this person has been given a divine task to minister unto God and to minister unto the people of God. That his life and his days were set apart for such a purpose. And if there's anything else that we can add to this person concerning his characteristics, if there's any detail that the Bible has given us, surely it is found in this psalm. Surely it is found in this beautiful psalm. I'm so glad that the Bible gives us honest texts. I'm so glad that the Bible gives us stories of real people who really live for a real God and went through real situations so that we can relate to them. And that's what Asaph is experiencing here. If there's one thing that we can know about him, it is this. That he has come at one point in his life into a crisis moment with his faith. That's what this psalm is all about. A worship leader who served God, loved God, adored God, believed God. But at one moment, he had a humble confession because his soul went into turbulent mode. His faith was being challenged in such a way that as we read, we realize that if he had gone further, he would have crashed and burned in his relationship with God. And if we can sum up what this soul commotion is all about, if we can sum up what Psalm 73 really boils down to, it is this, that Asaph made the observation in his life that the wicked, the unbelieving, 
seem to have a better life than the righteous. That those who reject God, mock God, rebel against God, seem to experience more joy, more thrill, equal if not more prosperity than those who have committed themselves to live for the Lord. And this was bugging him. This was tormenting him. This was challenging him to really think, is this whole Jesus thing worth it? And so we read in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Look what he says here. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a good start. Because he confesses that he does have a knowledge of the goodness of God. This is a person who knew the goodness of God, who experienced the faithfulness of God, who wrote about the goodness of God, who sung, who taught in some sense the people of God, that God in fact is good. And he's not just good in general. It says here, to those who are pure in heart. Meaning, those who have set their lives apart to honor God and serve God and walk in his ways, surely God is good to them. And he knew this. He really did. Like many people in the church that know God is good. God is good. All the time. All the time, God is good. He knew it. And he's saying it. And he's not saying it sarcastically necessarily, but he's about to admit now with that truth is another truth that he did not fully grasp that truth with all of his heart. God is good. Surely to those who are pure in heart. But, that's a big word. Something happens. But as for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he's saying, as much as I know that God is good, at one point, I felt my feet drifting another direction. Now notice he doesn't say my feet had slipped. He doesn't say I did stumble. He said nearly. He said almost. And so he's, he's inviting us into what was going on into his heart at one point. That although for a moment and for a long moment he was walking with God with both feet planted on the narrow path, walking with him day by day, serving him, he began to feel the right foot. Magnetize towards the world and say, you know what, maybe I can do this thing with one foot in the world and one foot in God. Or maybe he felt both feet wanting to just stop walking forward And perhaps just turn around altogether and do what? Let me just get a little bit of this world and get out long enough and maybe just walk back with God again. Or perhaps he was fully convinced, you know what? I don't even know if I want to walk this walk anymore. I'm tired. I'm doing a pros and cons list in my mind right now. I'm leading worship every Sunday, but I'm seeing something else with the people around me that are doing other things throughout the week, and it seems like this isn't really worth it. So why don't I just walk out on this whole thing completely? And we don't know how long that this man has been going with this thought pattern. We don't know how much he was really thinking this, or how long, rather. But it proves something to us, doesn't it? Oh, pay attention to this truth. It proves something to us, that even faithful, truth-believing, 
devoted followers of God, and dare I say, even spiritual leaders in faithful communities can sometimes feel like they want to give up. And this person was tempted to walk into a different direction. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe at one point, you and I have been tempted with that thought. At one point, maybe for different reasons. Maybe not for this reason, but for different reasons. Maybe like Elijah, you felt like you were all alone in your pursuit of faithfulness. Here I am, God, I'm the only prophet here in Israel that's standing for you. And I have a bounty on my head. What's going on? Take my life now. No? Okay. Jeremiah, here I am serving you, serving you, serving you. And my friends are making fun of me. They think I'm holier than thou. They think I'm taking this too seriously. Take me out, God. Or maybe just like Asaph. You've come to the conclusion at one point in your thinking that there really is no benefit to living for God. There's no advantage. Because when I compare my life as a righteous man in Christ to those who willfully disobey and walk away from relationship with him, it seems like I'm paying a higher price than they are. It seems like there's more blessing for them and there's more reproach for me. It seems like people are walking in reward where I'm walking in rebuke. People are walking in prosperity and here I am enduring persecution. And here I am trying to sacrifice and there's the world living in self-gratification. Have you been there? If so, take heart. Because this is a hopeful text for us. He says in verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. This is why he almost slipped. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you know what was happening to Asaph? Again, we don't know the, the period of time he was enduring this. But we can imagine what he was going through. There he is, looking at the world. Looking at his relatives. Looking at his friends that he knew in high school and college. Now he looks at his life. And he looks back. He sees their businesses prospering. He sees that they're making memories with their families. He sees the joy that they're clearly displaying. He looks back at his life. He goes on Facebook. He goes on Instagram. He checks out Snapchat. And he sees the stories. And he sees the laughs and the memories. And he looks at his account. And he looks at his life. And then throughout that time, something begins to brew in his heart. Envy. Envy, a mixture of emotion, a mixture of discontentment and resentfulness towards those who seem to have an advantage that he himself could not have in his own life because of his dedication to God. And so what does he do? He feels like he's missing out. He feels like, again, there's no, this, there's no advantage to this. I really can't find how I'm any different than the world. I really can't find why obeying God does produce a greater sense of life when those who seem to completely, not just disobey God, but mock God, seem to be just okay. What did Asaph see? 
What were the things that he observed? What were the things that he calculated throughout his life? Well, verse 4 down tells us, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and fat and sleek. And he, in this language, fat and sleek means you're prosperous. You were healthy. You were whole. You were well. And so what is he observing? I see that the wicked are going through life and it seems like nothing's afflicting them. That there's no disease falling upon them. That there's no plague coming in their life. It just seems like everything is fine. And here are some Christians that are faithfully serving God and they're burning with cancer. Here are some people that have set it apart in their minds and hearts to live for the glory of God and their health is betraying them day by day. And here are the wicked living in perfect health until their dying breath. How can this be? And not only that, but Asaph surely had observed, if you have a different translation, you'll notice that it talks about how they have no pain in death. That when they come even to the point of death, there seems to be no anxiety of the wicked. There seems to be no fear. There seems to be no worry of the unknown when it comes to the afterlife. They seem to slip right into death and everything seems to be just okay. He surely has made that observation more than once. And it bothered him. How is it that they don't have hope for the next life and they can die with such ease? How they can lay on their deathbed and not wonder or cry out? Do not assume that every person who is outside of faith dies in a panic. I remember one time being at a wedding. And I bumped into an individual that I didn't know very well, but I knew enough of him to know that he did not love God. In fact, he blasphemed God. He was a wealthy individual. He had money. He had jewelry. And before meeting this person, I had heard from another person that he had gotten really, really sick. I mean, very sick. And so when I saw this person at the wedding, we began to converse and catch up. And I had brought up the point that I heard that you were really ill at one point and that you're still almost recovering. And he said, yeah. And he began to describe how it just happened all for a sudden where this disease had struck in him. And he had lost all this weight and bleeding and all these different things. And he's been in the hospital for weeks and months. And he would show me even the pictures on his phone of, of, of things that I don't even describe this morning. And talking to this person, I know where he stands with God. And I thought to myself, as he's explaining it, wow, Lord, you're so merciful that you wounded this person to surely wake him up and help him realize that life is short. That your house, your cars, your jewelry means nothing. And so letting him speak, letting him speak, I finally wanted to ask him because he had brought up the point that he had almost died. They had come to the place of death. Death's door was right there one night in his hospital bed. And I was excited when he brought that up because I wanted to bring up the point that there's hope in death, that you don't have to fear death, that you don't have to worry about what's going to happen when you die if you have Christ. And so I brought up the question, were you afraid? Did you have this sense of the unknown, especially in that time when you were facing death? And you know what I was expecting? Oh yeah. Do you have the answers? Oh yeah. I sought God. Oh yeah. I really wanted to know how I can have hope in the next life. And as I was anticipating that answer, as I asked it with such excitement, he looked at me and said, no, I'm not afraid of death. So I said, hold on, did I ask the right question? You're not afraid of death? Do you not know what's going to happen after you die? No, in fact, I'm ready to stand before God. I thought to myself, man, no, you don't know what you're talking about. 
That's how the conversation ended. I thought to myself, how can somebody who has no hope have such confidence? It's amazing what false peace can do. False peace can take you to death itself and convince you that there isn't a living God that you will face. It says here in the next verse, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Those who live outside of faith seem like they have trouble-free lives. Again, they, they go through life. There's success. There's little consequence to their sinful actions. In the rebellion against God, they still have good times. They still travel. They still have nice homes and nice families. Successful kids that go on to be educated and there seems to be little turbulence in their lives. And here I see Christians, Christian teenagers, that have given their lives to Christ when they were invited to a youth group. But day by day, they go home to an abusive father, an abusive mother. I see Christians struggling to get by another day financially. I see Christians, parents who have wayward children, that have kids that are wasting their lives in brokenness and sin. And I see others that they're not Christians and their kids are, if we're honest, better than those of Christian households in terms of success and prosperity and all that good stuff. I don't get it. How does this make sense? Brothers and sisters, we cannot make the mistake with our faith that the psalmist has made and that even Job's friends have made when they came to try to comfort him and failed miserably. They came with a theology that's called retribution theology or retribution principle. And the idea is this, that if you do good, God will do good to you. And if you do evil, God will allow evil in your life. And though we have principles and promises about walking with the Lord, it's not as simple as that. Realize that when Job's friends came to him, they were trying to get it out of him that he had sin in his life. Job, you can't lose your family. You can't lose your business. You can't lose your health unless you've allowed sin in your life. Cough it up. That's what the book of Job is all about. That's why we have to be very careful of taking theology out of the book of Job because a lot of the things that these friends said were wrong. A lot of it was true, but they were implementing truth in a wrong way. And so this whole dialogue, Job's friends going, come on, man, the sooner the better. You get back right with God. God is going to do good to you. And Job's saying, I'm, I'm, I don't have anything. I can't think of anything that I'm wrong for here. And you have the disciples in John chapter 9. They see a man born blind. They say, hey, Jesus, I have a question for you. What happened? Did this man sin or his parents sin that he should be born this way? You know what Jesus says? Wrong. Both of them are wrong. Neither him nor his parents. He's not paying the consequence for his own sin in this matter, nor is his parents for his parents' sin. This has happened to him that the glory of God may be displayed through it. You come to Acts chapter 28, verse 4, where Paul and that ship were abandoned, and there was a shipwreck, and they found themselves on the island called Malta. And as they're preparing a fire because it was cold, a viper comes and snaps on his hand, and it's hanging there. And let me read this. Look at the conclusion that these Melton people were thinking, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, 
Justice has not allowed him to live. So you have Jesus' disciples, you have Job's friends, you have this psalmist, you have even people in a pagan society that believe this idea of God. You walk with God, everything will go right. You don't walk with God, everything will go wrong. And it's not that easy. It's not that simple. It's much more complicated than that. And if you and I believe that kind of idea, you know what we're going to do as a consequence? Many things, and here's one of them. We will fail to realize how God packages his blessings in different ways. Yes, God can bless you with good things, and God is blessing us when it comes to health and when it comes to things. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's true, but don't limit it to that. Don't limit how God expresses his blessings with things going well in your life. Just hear this verse. Look what the psalmist said in the book of Psalms, 119, verse 71. It is good. Look what he says. This is powerful. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Are you sure? It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So this man experienced some kind of affliction, some kind of pain in his life, something, and you read the rest of the psalm, you realize this is a man of God who loved the word of God, who said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I don't walk without your word. I seek your counsel day by day. And at one point he was afflicted and he says, it was good for me. God packaged his blessing in my life with affliction because it brought me even closer to his word. It brought me closer to his presence. It brought me closer to the knowledge of him. If you're being afflicted in one way or another right now, know this. If you're a believer in Christ, you may not see the blessing now, but wait till you come on the other end. You'll realize like this psalmist, I was afflicted. I didn't see it maybe during it, but I see it now and I say, oh, it was good for me that I was afflicted. We see in verse 6 of Psalm 73, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And so we see here that these wicked people who are living autonomous, independent apart from God lives, realize, hey, we're not living for God, and look at all the good things that are happening to us. And because of that, Failure to see, as we're going to find out in a moment, that God indeed was watching and he was keeping note. What does he do? What do the wicked do? They add more wickedness to their lives. They indulge in themselves in more iniquity. They fail to see the consequences of sin. They don't immediately see the interventions of God's discipline and judgment. And they go, you know what? Let's do some more evil. And you know what the psalmist is saying? Here I am swatting away temptations like flies from my workplace in my high school. Here I am fighting a war against my flesh, it seems, every hour. Here I am truly trying to live holy. And here are these people drinking sin like water. And everything seems to be going fine. Is holiness worth it? Look, this is why he says it in verse 13. Look at verse 13 in your Bibles, please. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's not worth it. I'm trying to compare here. I'm living with God. I'm living for God. And they're not. And they're not only being blessed, it seems. Maybe even more blessed than me. Am I wasting my time here? 
Am I really wasting my time doing this? What advantage do I have as a godly man? They're boasting in their sin. They seem to be getting away with it. They seem to, in fact, think they have God's approval to some degree. What I'm about to say is not going to be very politically correct. Hold tight. In 2015, Ireland legalized same-sex marriage. And interestingly enough, that day, the voting polls were open to legalize same-sex marriage. A double rainbow appeared in Dublin. And as it appeared, it was fuel for those who would oppose God's idea of marriage to all the more rejoice in that decision and it gained the attention of the world. Let me read to you what the Huffington Post said. As Ireland headed to the polls to vote on legalizing gay marriage, Mother Nature seemed to acknowledge the importance of the occasion with a number of rainbows. Some of them double rainbows that were captured by Twitter users in the days leading up to Friday's vote. Now let me read to you a couple tweets that were kind of viral. Here's one man who said, There's a big gay rainbow over Dublin If that's not Jesus giving the yes vote, I don't know what is. Here's another one. There's a rainbow over Dublin currently. Very appropriate. God clearly approves. Now look at Psalm 73 verse 11. And they, the wicked, say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You know what they're saying against God? God doesn't really know what's right for us. God's standard isn't really the only standard. God has to update with our culture. God has to keep in touch with how we're developing. And in light of that example, that's exactly what they were thinking. God approves of this sin. God approves of this shift in our understanding of traditional marriage. And I read one comment that I thought was, was totally right and as, as a response to that, that the double rainbow wasn't a sign of double approval. It was a sign of God reminding himself doubly not to judge the world. The wicked, the wicked have made a God in their own image because they fail to see the immediate act of God's judgment and God's discipline actually believe that he's maybe even approving of their lifestyle. And I can name off different sins here, but let's continue. And we can go on through the rest of the psalm trying to see what was weighing down Asaph's heart. But what we see next in the transition of the psalm is where we want to give most of our attention. He says here in verse 16, but... When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, I've been dealing with this internally in such a way that I couldn't really express it to anybody. I mean, I'm a spiritual leader here. I'm the guy leading the songs. I'm the guy encouraging others to continue in the faith. But if I'm honest with you, I don't understand what benefit I have living for him. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm really trying to weigh it out. And I I can't seem to come to a conclusion. 
So what do you and I do when we feel like the world, our circumstances, whatever it may be, seems to pull us and trip us and have us walk a different direction? Well, let's see what the psalmist did. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. This bothered me. This was eating me up inside. But everything changed when I made one decision. When I chose to come to church on Sunday morning. When I chose to, even in my doubts, even in my turmoil, even in my frustration, I chose to come to meet with God. Because I'm not getting answers from myself. And I know myself enough to say that I've lied to me more than anybody else. So where can I go to find some answers? You go to where truth is proclaimed. And he goes where the presence of God dwells. He goes where truth is known. And he learns something. He was reminded of something. Because this is where you and I are reminded of truth. This is where you and I are sobered from temptation are cleansed from our own thoughts that are telling us otherwise and seem to even mix it with emotion and other people trying to pull us into a different lifestyle or a different way of living. This is where we get realigned by the word of God. No wonder the devil wants you and I to skip church, especially a church that proclaims the truth wholeheartedly and without compromise. But he chose to go. And when he came, he learned something very quickly. We don't have to read it, but from verse 18 to 22, he came to the realization that these present realities of the wicked and even the righteous are not permanent realities. They're not permanent. Now, if I would encourage you to turn to a verse, it would be this one, Psalms 50. Psalms 50. Just to read something. Beginning in verse 16. What did Asaph learn? I'm sure he learned something here, what we read in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? God is speaking in this psalm. God is speaking to the wicked in this text. Look what he says. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. He's describing different sins, different behaviors that are contrary to the heart of God, to the will of God, to the holiness of God. And what does he say in verse 20? What does God say in verse 21? These things you have done and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You know what God is saying? This is God speaking in that psalm. And you know what he's saying? I'm, I kept notice of all the things that you're doing. And I've been silent. But hear this very carefully. Please don't do this in your life. Please, please, please hear me very carefully. Do not make the mistake of assuming that God's patience is the same as his approval. Can I say that one more time? Many people who are living in a pattern of sinful behavior are assuming that God's apparent silence is him really accepting what's going on. 
And he says in that psalm, I have been silent. And his silence is not a sign of his approval. His silence is a reflection of his long-suffering and patience. That even in your pattern of willful rebellion against God, that you would realize it at one point, that this is wrong, I'm sinning against him, and I want to live for Christ. So then you have people in Ireland in 2015 that have assumed that the silence of God was his acceptance. And you have people day by day looking at their lives, thinking nothing's going wrong. If there is a God, surely he's fine with what I'm doing because there's nothing to show for it. You know who wrote Psalms 50? Look at verse 1. Asaph. Asaph did learn something. Asaph did come to a realization. Oh, okay. So just because things are not happening wrongfully for the wicked, it doesn't mean that God's approving of it. It means that one day, God will bring a receipt. And people will have to make a payment, unfortunately, because they refuse the one who made the payment for them, the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what happens? He reminds himself in God's house, again, that God's silence is not his approval, but it is the expression of his patience. Do you remember the story of Adam and Eve when they sinned against God? Do you remember when God was looking for Adam? Where are you, Adam? Notice how he's approaching Adam. If you read it carefully, it says he was walking. He was walking. He was walking to Adam to face Adam to discipline Adam. But if you read in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son, and the son comes to his senses, and he realizes what he had done in rebellion against his father, he tries to muster up a speech, and he says, you know what? I, I've rebelled against God. I've rebelled against my father. I'm going to come to him and try to convince him not to make me his son, but to make me a servant. I, I'd rather be a servant than eat from the pigs. And so he comes back, and before he can even say a word, you know what the father does? Read it carefully. He doesn't walk. He runs. He runs towards the prodigal. What does that mean? That God is slow to judgment and quick to mercy. God, when it comes to judgment, when it comes to discipline, he walks. He's slow to it. But when a repentant heart comes before him and says, I really want to get right with you, he runs towards you. And when he runs towards you, I want to speak to the prodigals in here. If you're in sin right now and you know that you're in sin, don't try to convince yourself, even though you know truth, even though you walk with him at one moment, don't try to convince yourself and convince God for that matter that you're not worthy of his full blessing even though you knew that you were walking in rebellion against him. Because I want to let you know what happened when the prodigal went back. He didn't go back and convince the father and the father said, you know what, yeah, let me, let me put you with the service. The father said, go get the best robe. Go get the best robe, and we're going to celebrate the fact that he come back. If you need to come back to God today, know this. He's waiting with a robe, a ring, and a feast. And all of heaven will rejoice the fact that you've decided to walk with him again. He's slow to judgment. He's so quick to mercy. Let me read this poem to you. We're going to close in a moment. This poem is called A Hundred Years From Now. Pay very close attention. I know with all the phones ringing, the texts and the snapshots, and the just right here. Pay attention. It will not make much difference, friend. A hundred years from now, 
if you live in a stately mansion or on a floating river scow, if the clothes you wear are tailor-made or pieced together somehow, if you eat big steaks or beans and cake a hundred years from now, it won't matter about your bank account or the make of car you drive, for the grave will claim your riches and fame and the things for which you strive. There's a deadline we must all meet, and no one will turn up late. It won't matter than all the places you've been, each one will keep that date. We will only have eternity, what we give away on earth. When we go to the grave, we can only save the things of eternal worth. What matters, friend, the earthly gain for which some men always bow? For your destiny will be sealed, you see, a hundred years from now. Poem by Walden Parker. And after being dealt with by God in the sanctuary of God, when he had received the divine standpoint, when he had received the eternal perspective on how God will deal with all of mankind, both the righteous and the wicked, he realized something. I was wrong. And he says in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I've allowed my thinking to come to such a place where I was like an animal in my reason. But hear this very carefully as we close. That he did not only come to that conclusion after coming to the house of God. He didn't come to the conclusion only that God will eventually judge the wicked for their rebellion against him. No, 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 no. It wasn't just a future realization. Asaph had a present understanding of how really, on, on the surface level, it seems like the wicked have it better than the righteous. He couldn't be more wrong in that either. Why? What does he say in verse 23? Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. He goes, okay. I understand that there's going to be a judgment to come. I understand that this is going to be all dealt with and justice will prevail. But there's something about now that I realize that he holds my right hand. He holds my right hand. We're talking about God holding your hand. You don't hold the hand of a stranger, I hope. This is familiar language. This is intimacy. This is communion. This is God saying and revealing to us through this that I'm holding you. I'm holding you. I'm leading you. I'm comforting you. I'm with you. And he's saying this in light of the fact that he went through an intense season of doubt and he still knew that even in my doubt of the goodness of God, even in my false convincing and the persuasion actually pulling me away from him, God was still with me. I praise God that in the moments of despair, temptation, persuasion, whatever you want to call it, that God doesn't crush me in that moment. God doesn't look at me and say, haven't I done enough for you? Hasn't my son done enough for you? Have you been to enough Bible studies? Haven't you heard enough sermons? Out with you. No, he says, I hold you. You're going to get out of this. You're going to realize soon enough, just come to the sanctuary of God. Come into my presence. No matter how long it takes, watch how I'm going to lead you out of this doubt. I'm going to lead you out of this false persuasion that your flesh, that your friends, that your family are trying to pull you into. You hold my right hand. doesn't stop there. He says in verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
So it's not just this intimacy with God. It's the fact that God and his children, when he deals with you and I, he does not leave us in this life by ourselves. He navigates you and me through this life day by day. He guides us with his counsel. We have his word. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I was having a conversation with a friend not too long ago about, I don't know how we came to this point, but we were talking about growing up in the 90s. I'm a 90s baby. And we were talking about how great it was to grow up in the 90s as a child. You know, like if you wanted to go hang out with your friend, there was no such thing as texting them to come outside. Oh, no, 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 no. You had to get on your bike. You had to go down the street. You had to face the parents at the door, knock and ask if whoever is at home. No, come back in a couple hours, or I'll come back with my bike. Rain, snow, summer, you played outside. You played outside, and how did you know you were going home? You had to go home when the street lights start coming on. Okay, time to go home, dinner's ready. And all these wonderful memories of growing up in the 90s. But there's one thing we concluded that we're thankful for that we didn't grow up in the 90s without. I'm thankful I wasn't a young adult in the 90s for one main reason. No GPSs. Because I remember as a 90s kid sitting in the backseat of my parents' car and seeing how their map would cover three quarters of the windshield trying to figure out how to go to a specific location, risking our lives every single time. And I know this sounds funny, but hear me out. Talking with my friend, thinking to myself, can you imagine what life was like without a GPS? Can you imagine trying to go anywhere without punching in an address, placing it on that magnet, driving and trusting that wherever this lady is going to take me is going to be where I need to go? I thought to myself, what would life be without a GPS? And here's the thought. How can people live without God? I don't know how they do it. How can you live through this life without being navigated by him? How can you not have his instruction to know how to deal with circumstances, how to deal with people, how to deal with different things? How can you go through this life without God's spirit indwelling you, saying, this is the way you should go. Walk in it. No, son, don't go there. Circumstances, people, spiritual leaders that are also filled with the Holy Spirit, leading you and guiding you. Thank God for God. You guide me with your counsel. And he doesn't do it just partly. He doesn't do it just in your younger years. And then later on, you become normal and you just go through life. No. He says, I'm going to lead you until I bring you into glory. There's not a season of life that he doesn't lead you. If you want to cling to him, he'll lead you. And when you look back from glory, I can guarantee you this. You will see how he has truly led you, protected you. And whatever he needed to do to make sure that you would, along the way, be conformed to the image of his son and touch as many people for his name. No wonder he explodes in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is a different person than what we read from verse 4 down. Whom have I in heaven but you? And you know what? I've come to this conclusion. No matter what the wicked has, no matter what the righteous have, I have this one thing and it is enough. God himself. Our faith. If you claim to be a Christian in this place and you can't say that, you have to ask yourself some serious questions about the temperature of your spirituality. It's not about going to church on Easter and Christmas. It's not about performing some sacraments. It's not about doing this and doing that and checking it off and having some kind of insurance to get into heaven. What is this faith about? Where your heart is ravished and captivated by Christ. You realize that he's forgiven you for your sin and now he wants to walk with you day by day. Do you have that? Do you have that? You're not a Christian because you have a cross around your neck. 
And you're not a Christian if you got baptized as a baby. You're a Christian when you realize that he paid for your sin and you've received him by faith and he is Lord of your life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And let's just conclude here. Verse 27. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And look what he says in verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. A different person. It's good to be near God. And I've made the Lord God my refuge. It's another way of saying I've chosen though I don't understand everything to its fullest capacity, to trust in God, to, to rely on his wisdom, to rely on his timing, to rely that he is in control. And because of that, I'm safe. You and I have to make a conclusion that being with God without gold is better than having treasure without God. You and I have to be convinced that being with God in sickness is better than being without God in health. You and I have to come to the conclusion that being with God and persecution is, being be is better than being without God and having popularity. And that's the conclusion that he makes. And he doesn't end there. He says, I will make God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I'm going to let my life from this moment on, readers of this psalm, Know the goodness of God. I'm going to declare to the world that it doesn't matter what you have or you don't have. If you have God, you have everything. I'm going to tell the world that things may not make sense. We're legalizing things concerning life, concerning everything that seems to be against the word of God. And it seems to be no intervention. Days are only being darker and darker, it seems. But I'm going to trust and tell everybody that one day God is going to clean up this mess. I'm going to declare the works of God. Have you ever wondered what happened to Asaph after this point? Have you ever wondered what kind of legacy he left? What kind of influence he probably had based on that decision? Maybe we can't make strong conclusions. But if you read this little obscure verse in the book of Ezra chapter 2. It's when the Israelites who were many years, many, many years after this psalm was written were taken out of Israel to go into captivity in Babylon and were later brought back into Jerusalem. And there's this list of genealogies to keep record of who from what descendant came back to the nation. And look what it says in Ezra 2.41. I thought it was precious. It's just a simple verse. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. And I thought to myself, Here's a man who chose not to walk away, but chose to stay walking with him. And could it be that the result of his faithfulness was that his offspring for days to come would serve God and live for God? You're talking about 128 musicians, 128 ministers, 128 people that as a result of perhaps this man making that choice of standing firm would benefit from his faithfulness. You have no idea what your yes to God can do not just in your lifetime, but past your lifetime. I will tell of all your works. I will declare from generation to generation of how good God is, despite this world falling apart and maybe even thinking that their life is better without him. I, if I have any voice, if I have any influence, I myself will stand on this truth. He is enough. Do you know him this morning? 
I'm not talking about you going to church. I'm asking if you know him, like this psalmist knew him. If you don't, today can be your day. Today could be your day where you come to that point where you say, maybe I've been religious. Maybe I had this understanding that God is there, but there is no hint of real relationship with him. I mean, you've been sitting here this whole time, you're thinking, I don't really fully get it, but I know I don't have it. It can be yours. Because there is a real God who so loved you that he sent his son because there's a chasm, there's a separation between you and God, all humanity God. It was sin. And he sent his son to pay a price and build a bridge between you and the Father. He paid the price no matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter how black it is. It doesn't matter the stains of sin on your soul. Know this, that he sees it and he's not ready to judge you. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to come and cleanse you and not just cleanse you to bring you into glory, but cleanse you so that you can have fellowship with him in this life. He's here to take those burdens away. He's here to tell you, if you receive him, that you can walk through anything in this life and know, like what Jesus said, that you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I've given you a peace that surpasses all understanding. Take heart that you can see all this chaos and have this assurance that God is in control. And it's an invitation that God makes to all men if they're willing to humble themselves and say, I need this. God, I need you. And know this, when you're ready to make that decision, when you're ready to humble yourself, when you're ready to see what this word says is true about the human nature and how good God is, and you come to that place where you say, enough is enough, I surrender my life to Christ, he won't walk towards you, he'll run. He's waiting, but he's not going to push himself on you. He's not going to force you. He's going to wait for you to come to that realization that you're eating out of a pig's pen. And like that prodigal son, you spent everything on the world. You indulged yourself. You went to the bank. And you're still empty inside. And that father, you read in Luke 15, did not run and chase his son. He was waiting for him. All he needed, all he needed was the son to turn. And once he did, he came after him. Would you do that this morning? Would you do that this morning? Let's pray.